If you look at any of my interviews from that time, you'll never be able to tell actually, because by now I've taught myself how to, I mean, it's show business, right? You teach yourself how to put your deepest, darkest secrets and feelings behind the closed door of your trailer. And when you step out, you're a public person. And I've learned how to do that very well. But every time I would come back into my trailer, or I would, you know, walk away from the flashing lights. I would go into a shell and I didn't want to come out of it. Welcome to this very exciting In Conversation episode of Shameless with Priyanka Chopra Jonas. Priyanka is, without a doubt, the most famous person we've ever had the privilege of interviewing on this podcast. For starters, she has more than 60 million followers on Instagram, is one of the biggest Bollywood actors and producers of her generation, has managed to pull off a seamless transition into Hollywood, is married to a Jonas brother, and just published a New York Times best-selling memoir. As you can imagine, getting to where Priyanka is today took boundless grit and guts and determination but what we wanted to hear most from Priyanka was about the facets of her life that the lights and the cameras don't catch the Priyanka who loves and hurts and feels the exact same range of emotions you or I do in this interview we speak about Priyanka's rise to the very top yes but also the village of people who got her there we talk about grieving her father, grappling with loneliness, wrangling with fame, and falling in love with her husband, Nick. It was beyond exciting to be trusted by Priyanka to do this interview, and we hope you enjoy the listen. Here's Priyanka. Priyanka, thank you so, so much for joining us. This is a massive pinch me moment, not only for Zara and I, but for all of our listeners as well. Mm, you guys are so kind. I'm so happy to be speaking to both of you. Priyanka, what time is it where you are? It's late, I think. No, it's not that bad. It's like 8.30 in the evening. I mean, it's late to be working, but I think it's very early for you. <laughs> we just woke up. We did just wake up. I sound very nasally and very like morning-esque. Our energy will be like picking right up in about 10 minutes. <laughs> Priyanka, we want to start where we always do, which is to ask right at the beginning, what were you like as a kid? You know, my mom will love me for saying this, but I, I will admit I was very naughty. I was, you know, I was a handful. I didn't like to listen. I was never a rule follower. In fact, if I had rules that were laid out by my parents, I would obviously choose to disobey them deliberately. So I was a big handful, <laughs> which is why I was sent to boarding school when I was in third grade. <laughs> We were going to mention that to you. You went to boarding school when you were just seven years old. As a teenager, you also went to live in America with your aunt. How did those kind of experiences, those really like independence-defining experiences, shape who you are as a person? I think they really made me very independent, Michelle. I have to say, like, when I, I was terrified at seven, of course, when you're going to boarding school, I felt abandoned. I resented my mom, my parents. I didn't understand what I had done wrong at that point. But three years later, when I came back home, I, I had a superiority complex compared to the other kids in my class. I was like, I'm an independent woman. Your parents still drop you to school. <laughs> I think it really helped me kind of find a sense of self for myself at a very young age, which 
helped me decide that I wanted to go to the States for high school and I wanted to stay there. And I wasn't afraid to be living with extended family and worried about my parents. And my family always encouraged the independent streak in me, my mom specifically. She was herself a very independent woman and wanted me to have that much to my dad's jargon because I was a massive handful. But, you know, I think it it helped shape a fearlessness in me that I don't think I realized it would. Priyanka, one of the big early threads that we found in the book that was really interesting and very moving was how essentially, as you touched on, you were raised by a village. Like you lived with a whole array of family members growing up, which must have been a very beautiful thing. And I think when Mish and I were talking about this in the prep for this interview, we thought about how so many kids find refuge in their mum and dad. But for you, you found refuge in so many different family members. Can you talk to the beauty of that? I have to say that Indian culture lends itself to the extended family in a really big way. Not just the nuclear family, not just your parents, but your parents, siblings, and you know your grandparents and your cousins. They're a large part of our lives. And it's not just India that has this sort of commitment to the extended family. I mean, Greeks, Italians, you see a lot of cultures around the world that kind of tend to travel in packs. And... I think it, it's so wonderful because so many of my cousins have lived with me and my parents when they were young. I lived with them when I was young, whether it was for a better opportunity, whether it was for a better circumstance. There was always help that we were never alone because there was always help by someone or the other in the family. The only downside to it is when you have a party there's hardly any invitations left for your friends because your family is like 100 people. (laughs) (laughs) You spoke just then about how your family kind of encircles you and how so many different family members really do support you through those really precarious ages of childhood and adolescence. And one part of your book that really stood out to both Zara and I was when you were bullied for your Indian culture and your Indian heritage at American high school. I mean, some of the racial slurs that you were on the receiving end of were nothing short of disgusting. One that stood out to us was, do you smell curry coming? What does that kind of race-based bullying do to not just your sense of self, but also, I guess, your ties to your family? I imagine that if I was overseas growing up and I was experiencing that kind of race-based hatred from the kids I was at school with, it would almost push me more into that family and find refuge in my aunt and my cousins even more. I did the opposite, actually. I didn't seek help from my aunt or my cousins. I didn't talk about it to anyone because... I always saw myself as a strong girl. I always saw myself as someone who can deal with situations like most of us do. And especially at such a young age, you're also embarrassed. I was also embarrassed that I was scared of these girls. I was embarrassed to admit that I was not just fearful, but I maybe believed them in a weird way, that there was something wrong with me and that I wasn't good enough. And, you know, when you're a teenager and you're still dealing with all of these feelings. And now on the other side of 35, I can come to terms with that. But at that time, I think I was so afraid that they might be right, that I dealt with it very alone. I didn't tell my parents about it till I left America, came back to India. And I think the one thing that did help me, which a lot of people when they deal with racism don't usually have the ability to do or or have the luxury to do. I could get out of the situation of abuse 
and moved to my a new country. I left America. I moved to India. I went into the refuge, like you said, of my parents, my family, who had no idea what was happening to me, right? So I started all over again. And thankfully, I was surrounded by love, support, and encouragement from them. And that helped me forget how I was made to feel. But a lot of people don't have the ability to do that or, or to get out of you know, the situation that they're in where they are being abused, whether that's racially, whether that's emotionally, physically. And I, I feel very blessed to have had the opportunity to be able to get out of it and build and understand that there wasn't anything wrong with me. You feel very much like the definition of a hardworking perfectionist. I mean, that thread is sort of all throughout the book and it was very stark to me. It's clear how hard you work and how sort of much of a perfectionist you are. But did that mean growing up that you were your own harshest critic? Not growing up as much. Growing up as much, I didn't ever critique myself very much, except for maybe in the looks department or in the cool quotient department where I was like, am I cool enough? Will the popular kids like me? Like that stuff, (laughs) really. But I became critical of myself when it came to my work. I became critical of myself when it came to my work. Even if I was writing a paper for, I don't know, a project for school or for class, if I tangibly put myself into something, then I'm extremely critical of it. But otherwise, I'm I'm a slob. Like I sit in my pajamas. I don't clean my room. I don't like making my bed. I, it's the, you know, it's the same thing like everybody else. But if I creatively have put myself, and that's something I've seen from when I was a teenager. Like I once I remember I was doing a world history project while I was in high school in Iowa, and a lot of kids in my class didn't know about India. And I just took it upon myself to do this world history class and like educate them about, you know, what India was like. And I remember one of the girls had come and asked me, she was like, do you have gold in your rivers? <laughs> Some really, and this is eighth grade. People don't know a lot. <laughs> yeah. But I remember I was so confused by that statement. And I went and asked my my family, I was like, why would they think that I had gold in my rivers? <laughs> or like I went to school <laughs> on an elephant. So that <laughs> to me was such an impetus of wanting to educate my classmates. And I remember I stayed up till five o'clock in the morning, went to school at seven, was on the internet in my public library, printing out images of what big cities in India looked like. And I did this massive presentation because it came from a place of passion. And I realized that with everything that I create, it comes from a place of passion. I have a massive eye for detail, and I really enjoy the the craft of being able to create something as perfectly as I've envisioned it. And that existed from when I was young, but otherwise not at all. You're speaking to two very passionate people and two people as well who are also quite perfectionistic. And I'm curious, like I feel like in myself, I have to give either 100% of myself to something or I kind of give 0%, like it's very much I'm either in this or I'm not in it at all. Are you the same with what you take on in your life, that it's either 100 or 0? Absolutely. If I'm not interested, I'll do it, and I'll still do it to the best of my ability, but I've usually noticed that it doesn't end up succeeding as much as it would have if I was passionate about it, if it came from you know, a deep place in my spirit. There have been movies I've signed on, you know, which when I come on set, I'm just like uninspired and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not good material. 
but I'll still do my job because I'm also a professional. But I've always ended up noticing that, you know, somehow it never works in favor of the trajectory that I was going in. So I've become over time very careful about what I truly feel passionate about. And you don't have to know that five years in. And that's the the privilege I have with being in the profession that I'm in, as much as it's unstable, my job is extremely unstable, right? I don't know where my next check is coming from. It's not a nine to five. It's every project dependent. So it's a constant hustle. I'm forever running. I'm forever trying to figure out what the next step is. You don't have time to rest on your laurels. You don't have time to think about at least for me, I didn't. And, you know, 20 years later, now that I look back, I'm like, oh, I've always just been running. And I think that the one thing that that allows me to do is I don't have to commit to something far ahead. I don't have to think about what I will be four years later. I focus on the moment. I focus on being excellent today in every single thing that I do. And then when I look back, I've sort of been on a path of excellence, but that doesn't require spending so much time lamenting over where you're going to be. It's about doing it in the moment right now. Priyanka, let's go back then to the start of this kind of career that you embarked on when you were 18, your brother Sid and your mom entered some photos of you into the annual Miss India competition. And I think one thing that I loved hearing you explain in the book is how you noted that pageant culture in India is really respected and that there is perhaps a different culture of pageants in India than maybe you'll find elsewhere. Can you talk about how big that Miss India competition is as a launching pad? Well, I have to say this was, again, the year 2000. It was the millennium Miss India, the millennium Miss World. I mean, there's not going to be another one for a thousand years, right? So that itself was hyped and it was a big deal. But the Miss India pageant used to be, I'm not really sure anymore, but at that time, I remember very clearly, there was a period of about 10, 15 years where it was a golden event, like everyone would watch it, like millions of people in India would watch it. And Miss World, I remember, was watched by some millions of people around the world and in a hundred and something countries. So it was a really, really big deal. And most Miss Indias in India and the history of the pageant have had a direct navigation into the movie industry. They've all taken a step in becoming actors, whether they've survived it or not, whether they've done well in it or not. Most of them have taken a step in that direction. So it was kind of a launching pad to becoming an actor. I didn't think about it that time because it was not part of my career goals. I just was trying to just be in this competition and actually keep my head above water because I'd never modeled. I'd never walked in a tiara and like expensive gowns and six inch heels at the same time smiling and being coherent. And that's crazy to do at 17. So I was just trying to navigate that at this point. And then when everything happened to me and when movie offers started coming to me, I won't lie. I was curious, you know, the movie industry in India is so robust and so large. And even in Australia, we have such a large fan following of Hindi movies and I've come for multiple premieres to Australia for a lot of my Hindi movies for promo so it was just a really enticing idea after I won the pageants and my dad me and my mother had a large conversation I was just 18 I was going to college at that point and the conversation was about do you really want to do this and I said well I 
I don't know if I want to do it, but I want to try it. And my dad said, I don't ever want you to have a what if in your life. You know, I don't want you to ever think going forward, what if I tried it? He said, you're just 18. Give it a shot. If you're terrible, you can always go back to school. And that's how it happened that, you know, the, the launching pad that Miss India gave me, which was revered and respected. And people were very excited because it was sort of like a, you know, rags to riches sort of story where girls from everyday walks of life were looked up to by people. And I think that was the magic of Miss India that time as well is like, we weren't celebrity girls. We were just normal girls from like normal homes, not pageant girls, but just like people with the aspirations of wanting to be in modeling or in the entertainment business. And I think that magic was something that really excited people and hence it becoming a launchpad. What surprised you most about fame in the very, very early days? I mean, your name was in bright lights everywhere and all of a sudden everyone wanted to know who you are and wanted to know your story. What really surprised you about those early few years? Well, the one thing that really surprised me now while I was writing the book, I was like, I really loved the attention. I did. And I'm not going to lie. I liked the attention and I liked being the center of the room. And I was okay with people saying, you're great. (laughs) Who wouldn't be? I really took to it (laughs) like fish to water at that point. And now at at 38, I'm like, what were you thinking? Did you not have any shred of humility? You know, Afri, I, got, I was going to read out a passage to you. I didn't read it because I was like, oh, you kind of summed it up in your last answer anyway. But one of my favorite quotes from the book was this one. The Sheridan welcomes Miss World 2000 Priyanka Chopra. It took my breath away. My ambitions and goals changed and crystallized in that moment. And I remember thinking, I want that. I want my name in big letters whenever it's written. I find that so refreshing for someone to admit that like you just have. I feel like there's this attitude that everyone should be like, oh, it all just happened. Like, I don't know. I don't really care about the kind of like bells and whistles that come along with the industry. But like, that's exciting. I feel like anyone would be like, that's really cool to have that kind of bubbly feeling inside that people want to know who you are and people are interested, right? Especially in the beginning. Like now, every time I meet a new actor and they're going through that feeling or someone who's just come into the limelight for the first time and they're going through that feeling, I'm so jealous because, you know, the feeling of the first time doesn't happen a second time. I was lucky it happened to me twice. It happened to me in America and then it happened to me in India as well. It (laughs) happened to me in both countries. But it doesn't happen. And that feeling is so exciting. And I remember as an 18, 17-year-old girl, I was you know, reveling in it. I was so excited, especially after coming back from America, where I felt so confused about my self-worth and my self-being. Here I was being validated by people that I didn't even know. And I was just very excited about the feeling. But it was never, Michelle, about, I think, the fame. Over time, it changed from being a popularity contest into being Like, I think when I came to terms with the fact that this was going to be my job, which was a couple of years in, it wasn't about the fame anymore. It was about how many more people can I reach with my work? How many more? How much further can I go? How many people can I entertain? Because I realized I've become an entertainer. My career has been my acting school. You know, my career has has been my greatest teacher because I had to learn everything on the job. 
And I think the fascination with fame was something I left behind a long, long time ago. But in the beginning, it was euphoric. I'll never forget going back home, sitting with my friends and family, going back to my school, meeting my teachers and them wanting to take pictures with me. I was like, what is happening? Coming up after the break, how Priyanka fell into a deep depression after the death of her father and falling in love with Nick. But first, a word from today's sponsor. One of the things that is really moving about the book is how you write about your parents in particular. And it seemed to be that your parents sacrificed a lot to help you have the career that you wanted. I mean, after you won Miss World, your mum gave up a career as a gynecologist to sort of help you embark on a film career. How do you look back on those sacrifices and how much do you appreciate everything that they gave you? Zara, I never even thought about it at that time. I felt like when I was writing the book and 10 years in maybe is when I started thinking about it. One day me and my mom were having an argument And, you know, I was being a brat because my life was obviously most important. And, you know, I'm on a set and I'm busy and I hadn't slept. And I was just being a brat with my mom. And this is like in my mid-20s. And she just got really sad. And I remember we had this conversation and she said, I'm only telling you this because that's my job now. You know, the job that I had, I gave up so that you could have yours. And when she said that to me, My heart broke for her because now I'm going to be 40 in two years. I know how much ambition I have in my, in myself. I know how much, how much further I want to go. And my mom was in her forties that time. She had just built her own practice, her own hospital, taken loans. And she happily gave it up. I don't know happily or not, but at that time, She and my dad were just like, you know, we've built our lives and now it's her turn and she has this moment and she has to take advantage of this moment. And both my parents like had to give up a lot of their their lives. They gave up their hospital. They moved to Mumbai with me. My dad, my dad, beautiful surgeon, he put down his scalpel and, you know, started doing administrative work because that's the job that he got when he moved to Mumbai and Any doctor listening to this conversation will tell you that's really hard to do. (laughs) It's like putting down a paintbrush probably and, you know, going into paperwork. And now, you know, I appreciate that more than anything. And I hope that I can be that selfless of a parent because the greatest gift my parents gave me was a sense of confidence and a belief in myself. If they hadn't shown me that my dreams weren't crazy or that I didn't have larger ideas than I should, if they were cynical of me or skeptical of what I wanted to do, I would have never had the courage to do it. But they always, whether it was moving to America 12 years old or whether it was joining the movie business or, you know, being in a pageant, like they were always like, what do you want to do? What's your choice? They gave me the power of choice. And that's the greatest gift my parents gave me. Your love for your parents was just absolutely embedded in every single page. I mean, the cover of your book shows your wrist tattoo, Daddy's Little Girl. I've seen it flashed throughout the interview. When <laughs> it's my dad's handwriting. Oh, it's absolutely gorgeous. And it's so sweet. And your dedication, like Zara and I, we read a lot of books, we're massive readers, but your dedication in this book was perhaps one of the favourite 
dedications that I've ever read. It was, Dear Papa, much like the title of this book, your story was unfinished. With that in mind, I dedicate the rest of mine to you. I miss you, Dad. One description you gave of your father in the book, it was only a few words, but again, it really sung to me, was, My dad was a man in love with life. What do you think, like when you picture your father now and you're speaking to us, what are the first few words that come to mind or what are the standout memories that come to you? Because he just sounds like the most magical person. He used to make everything magical. He was funny. Everything was a joke. Everything was loud and big and just an adventure. My dad had this spirit of just picking up and making everything fun. And I never want to remember him in the last few years because I don't think he would have wanted me to remember him after cancer ravaged him the way it did because it's a horrible disease and it's not something as loved ones, you know, when you watch someone who is such a large personality and so full of life just being annihilated by this disease slowly over time, it's it's it crushes you. And especially because my dad was this big mountain of a man. He was 6'2", and when he walked into a room, you knew it. If there was a crowd, he was in the middle of it. Like, and that's very much like me. I, I have that big personality, too. I inherited it from my dad. You know, I'm not shy. I, I'm loud, and I'm okay laughing loudly. I'm not. And I really inherited that from him. But what I do remember about my dad was his softness. He was a very, very sensitive man, very gentle and again something I've inherited from him he used to get hurt really quickly and when he got hurt he wasn't an angry person you know when there's some people who, when they get hurt they get angry he got sad and he used to become small and he used to go lie down in his bed and go to sleep for four hours this big giant of a man and I was like dad you can't have a tantrum and just go to bed and not have a conversation <laughs> But he, he used to be that guy. My mom, whenever she was mad, she would listen to like really loud music on her headphones and start rearranging the furniture. And my dad would go to bed. <laughs> I love that so much. Priyanka, one of the more, I guess, relatable parts of your story is how you write about how you coped with the loss of your dad. And you said even just now that you tried to bury the pain for a number of years until you did eventually find yourself in a deep depression. What were the standout memories in that really dark time you found yourself in 2016 and 2017? I felt like a robot, honestly. I felt like I was waking up for functionality and not for living and I'm someone who loves life I love people I think life is the greatest gift but I was I was stagnant I wasn't moving even though I was moving I was going to work every day I was filming Quantico season one and two but I just moved into a new country as well I didn't have friends and family at that time I had also come out of a breakup and my father had died. It was just like a lot of a lot of things that, you know, sort of I felt at the same time. And I think I just hit a wall. And every morning I would wake up, go to work, but I wasn't really feeling anything. I don't remember feeling much. I didn't want to speak to people. I didn't want to meet friends. And if I met anyone, it used to be my team because I was working through this. I was doing promotion. The first season of my show was coming out. 
and every day was like a different thing. And if you look at any of my interviews from that time, you'll never be able to tell actually, because by now I've taught myself how to, I mean, it's show business, right? You teach yourself how to put your deepest, darkest secrets and feelings behind the closed door of your trailer. And when you step out, you're a public person. And I've learned how to do that very well. But every time I would come back into my trailer, or I would, you know, walk away from the flashing lights or people talking to me, I would go into a shell and I didn't want to come out of it. You know, it was that seduction of sadness that I kind of loved at that point. And I just, it was, it was terrifying as a period. Now, when I look back, you know, I'm so grateful for having come out the other side. I'm so grateful for being in the life that I have at the moment, but I could have very easily stayed stuck. A lot of people stay stuck, but because since I was a child, I've learned to keep moving somehow I held my own hand and pulled myself out of the quicksand that I think I was stuck in. I chose myself. That's so beautiful. I I feel like in public discourse, people have a tendency to act like celebrities do not experience the full range of human emotion. Like, of course, there's a lot of privilege that comes with being a celebrity, but of course, it can also be incredibly lonely and isolating. And you did speak about that depression in 2016 and 2017 is the loneliest time in your entire life. And I think it can be to our own detriment to glorify the lives of famous people and to not think that they feel loneliness and heartache and loss just like any other person does. Do you think that disconnect, even people feeling like maybe you're so famous and your life's so perfect and everything's so glittery and wonderful all the time, magnified the sense of loneliness and isolation that you were going through through that time? I, of course, get affected by it. And I've kind of tried to understand what it is as well. It's like when someone is famous or when someone's living a big life, you know, you feel like, well, they have everything. You know, they have money, they have a home, they have a family. They, it looks great. They have everything. So what should they be upset about? What kind of privileged problems do they have, Right. And yes, there's a part of it that's true. But the feelings that human beings feel, which are really basic, anger, hurt, failure, rejection, loss, disappointment, grief, it doesn't matter where someone is in the food chain, honestly. It just matters that we're all human beings and we all bleed red. And it's okay. I understand that feeling as well. As a public person, people sometimes are like, you don't feel anything or what should you be feeling? And I've stopped explaining now because that's not something I can change. But what did affect me at that time was not the isolation that I felt from people, but it was the isolation I chose, honestly. And that's what was hard for me to understand for a very long time. And then I came to terms with the fact that I spent so much time running away from feeling the things that I should have felt that it all hit me at one time. And it's so much more healthier for all of us, whether you're famous, whether you're not famous, for everyone as a human being to lead a healthy life. It's so important to have a healthy mental space in your mind, to give your feelings credence, to allow yourself to mourn, to allow yourself to love, to allow yourself to feel sad. It's okay 
to let ourselves feel the feelings that we're supposed to feel, you know, and then that helps you get out of it. Because as soon as you feel the thing you're so afraid of, or as soon as you talk about the thing you're so afraid of, it takes away its power. And then it's not as scary anymore. You spoke in the book about how it was in this time of deep depression that you met your now husband, Nick, for the first time. What drew you to him in those first few meetings? Well, only one time, actually. We met once and then we went to the Met Gala, so twice, okay. What drew me to him at that time, I think, was the fact that he slid into my DMs very confidently. (laughs) Curious. (laughs) I was curious. I was single. I was mingling at that time. So I was like, all right, let's mingle. And that's what it was at that time. I didn't give it any importance. In fact, I may have judged the book by the cover at that time where I was like, you know, I'm 35. I want to find somebody I want to get married to. I want to start a family. I want to, I want to settle down in life. And I didn't give Nick enough credit that, you know, because he was 25 at the time, I was like, I don't think he's, this is, that's not going to happen. And I didn't even give him a chance to explain. And then when I went out on a proper date with Nick, two years later or something, I was like, oh my God. I knew in like three or four days that we were heading in that direction. I just wish I'd given it a chance at that time. But you know, that's why I believe in destiny. I really do think there's a higher power. There's something inexplicable which sort of guides us to where we're supposed to be. And I think I was supposed to be and meet my husband when I did properly. There's a really gorgeous passage in the book where you talk earlier on about your parents' love and your parents' marriage. And you wrote, often at home and especially at parties, dad would put on the charm. He would sing to mom, recite poetry for her, completely and utterly embarrass her. He was creative and romantic and thoughtful. And I dreamed of having a relationship just like theirs, one of true partnership and of romance, poetry and music. First of all, I imagine it's a source of kind of sadness that Nick and your father will never meet, but also I imagine it would be lovely to think that maybe you two will now recreate that gorgeous bond that your parents had and that you witnessed growing up, right? For sure. I feel like I'm not someone who puts the pressure of what a relationship should be on a relationship. I think it's really important to be honest to what it's going to become within the two of us. And I think Nick and I already have that mutual respect for each other and admiration for each other already. And I think that was from the get-go. So I never really had to work on it. But, you know, it is it is sad sometimes. Like my mom has been with us for six months now because of the quarantine in, in India and stuff. And she's just about going back. And we sit down at night together and she says sometimes, she's like, I wish dad would have met him or I wish he could have heard this song and, or, you know, Nick's playing his album and mom and I share a look with each other. And we both know, we don't have to say it, but we both know that it would have been lovely. I think my dad would have loved him. Towards the very end of the book, you wrote of making a home with Nick and you wrote, I love this new vantage point, feet planted firmly on the ground, eyes gazing up to the heavens. It allows me to consider what I have in my life and where I come from, what I've learned, the work I've done and will continue to do and my dreams for the future. What do those dreams look like? Well, one thing for sure is I've just about started doing the work that I had been seeking in the West, in America, 
and I want to be able to do the range of work that I was blessed with in India, which is a variety of roles, genres and parts, working with amazing filmmakers, actors. So I really do want to see my career flourish in this part of the world if I get the opportunity to. I want to, as a businesswoman, be able to build my businesses. I've just founded a hair care line. I've just about, you know, launched a restaurant, my production house. I'm doing multiple, multiple really exciting projects, which I'm going to announce for next year as a producer. So I'm just taking like baby steps in those directions. My foundation is something that I'm taking baby steps towards as well. So I feel like there's so many things which it's like a checkers board that I sort of have to put together right now. And that's definitely going to take up a lot of my time. But I've also learned that my home life is very important to me. So hopefully being able to spend enough time with my friends, my family, and making sure that I can balance the two. I have been able to do it really well so far. And I hope to continue to do that as my career sort of grows with more multiple verticals that I take on. Priyanka, our second last question, we ask every interviewee these last two questions. Our second last is a hypothetical. You stumble upon a table of acquaintances or people who might be talking about you over dinner. And we want to know from every single guest we speak to, if you do stumble upon that table of people discussing you, what would you want those people to say? What do you want the impression that you give other people to be? I think the one impression that I would want people discussing me is to have a sense of respect for how much has gone into building the work that I've done instead of, you know, seeing that it was always like this. It wasn't always this life that I'm living right now. It required a lot of hard work. It required a lot of gut-wrenching, you know, situations. It required dealing with failure, rejection, So I would hope that people discussing me would have a respect for the career that I've built and the fact that they understand a lot more about, you know, the culture that I come from around the world because I see myself as a cultural ambassador for India. I have been since I was Miss World, since I was Miss India. I never dropped that crown. So (laughs) I hope through me, you know, a lot of people around the world see India beyond the stereotype that most people are introduced to India as. So these two things would be really important to me. Priyanka, our last question for you. With all of this in mind, what is success to you? How do you define success in your own life? Good question. I think success to me is really simple. Success to me is when you wake up in the morning and you jump out of bed with a spring in your step, excited about the next day, looking forward to the next day, whether that is success in your personal life, your professional life, but that feeling of contentment, of looking forward to what life has to bring, I think that is the biggest success of them all, where you don't wake up stressed out about, oh my gosh, how am I going to deal with this day? Or how am I going to deal with my phone calls? You know, that feeling of being burdened by life, that's not successful. When that's taken away from you, when that's alleviated, and you feel a sense of, I have a handle on this, I think that's successful. 
Priyanka, thank you for writing such a brilliant, brilliant book. Thank you for giving us one of the most exciting moments of our careers. You did not have to spend these last 45 minutes with us and you chose to and we are incredibly, incredibly grateful. So thank you. Thank you, Michelle and Zara. You had such an insightful conversation. No wonder so many people love your show. It's really, really lovely. (laughs) I love chatting with you guys. Thank you, Priyanka. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the incredible Priyanka Chopra Jonas. If you loved this interview with Priyanka, you can buy her new memoir, Unfinished, via all good bookstores. You can also join the 60 million people who already follow her on Instagram at Priyanka Chopra. As for us, well, we release new interview episodes every Monday. So stay up to date with who we're chatting to next. Make sure you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify. That is all from us, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday with our pop culture wrap. Bye. Bye. Oh, hi, it's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week now. Every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time <laughs> to be in your ear holes. So essentially, <laughs> each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which, let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.